your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Two weeks ago we had Bob Yandian here and I was just really blessed because it's as if he had been following right along with what we've been teaching. And of course he didn't know what we've been teaching. It was the Spirit of God just confirming to me that what we're talking about is what he wants us to hear and what he wants us to know. And of course last week we were away. So we're going to get back and, and I, I, I do this with a little bit of fear and trepidation because we started three weeks ago to review this and we never got out of the first scripture. And the Spirit of God just took over. But what we're talking about, the real series we're in, is learning to, is learning to walk in the Spirit. And, and I want to explain to you again, because it's been several weeks, why we're doing that and what that means. Understand this, there are, the, word, the Bible teaches us that there are two realms of existence. There's this natural, material realm that we spend so much time thinking about and dealing with about. And it's the realm that was created in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was the word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that's this natural material realm. It's anything that one of your, one or more of your five senses can detect. So if you can see it, feel it, tell it, taste it, smell it, or hear it, it's of this natural realm. Our bodies were formed of this natural realm. Genesis 2-7, God took man and he formed man's body out of the dust of this earth. And then it said he breathed out of his lungs the breath of life. So the life that is in us came from the spirit realm, came from God who was a spirit. But the body he gave us came from this material realm. So we are unusual creatures, different than any other of God's creation, which makes us different from the animals. As much as science is trying to tell us we're, the, we're just any other animal, we're not. We're the only being God created in His image. He didn't create the monkey in His image. He didn't create the elephant in His image. He didn't create the one-eyed newt in His image. God created man in His image. And the devil's trying to blur those lines so that we lose our identity as who we are as God's greatest creation. And then God put His life inside of us. So we belong to two different realms, two different kingdoms. And then God gave us a soul. So there's our body, which comes from this realm. There's the spirit, which is your real nature, who you really are. That comes from God's realm. And that's an eternal realm. And then we have a soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions. It's our personality. And that's the realm part of us that we've taught you before. We're not going to go back over. That connects these two realms together. Because by nature, your spirit cannot contact your body. Because your body can only detect things that can be seen, feel, touched, heard, or smelled. And the spirit realm can't be detected by those realms, by those senses, unless God does something supernaturally or unusual. So God's given you a soul that makes contact. It's the bridge between the two of that. And we'll see that a little more clearly as we learn further along how to walk in the Spirit. But just to set the stage again. So that's what we've been learning. Now here's why this is so important. Because when you come to Christ, the Bible tells us that God took your old spirit out. The one that was getting you into so much trouble. And put a brand new spirit into you that's born of Him with His nature, with His person, with His nature. We've been given the divine nature. You've been a new creature in Christ, 2 Corinthians 4.17. Then any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new species of being. You're not who you used to be on the inside. Your nature changed. Not only that, it is born out of God, so that is the part of you that's God's child. So you have God's nature. You have, God's, you have the Spirit of God living inside of you. One third of who God is is living inside of you. The Bible says the kingdom of God is within you. All the wisdom of God, all the power of God, the same Spirit, 
Romans 8, 11, that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, not will dwell in you when you get to heaven, dwells in you now. Now stop and think about what you're dealing with in your life. You may be dealing with sickness in your body. You may be dealing with emotional issues, fear and depression. You may be dealing with family issues. You may be dealing with financial issues. You may be dealing with all of them that are just overwhelming you and making you think, my goodness, I hope I can even make it through the day. And yet sitting here with all that weighing in on you literally is God living inside of you. And we walk around with all the potential Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 15 and 16, Paul prays for the church, for us, that we be strengthened by His Spirit in our inner man, that we be strengthened with might. That word means brute force. By His Spirit in our inner man, so that Christ may be able to live in us, live through us. That's His will. God's will is that literally He turns you into Christ. It's like, oh, well, you're His child. Now, you're never going to become Christ because you didn't die for the sins of the world. But His nature is in you. We are the body of Christ, right? I'll try that over here. I know you know this. We are the body of Christ. That's not some metaphor. We are His body on this earth. So we have His nature. We also have His responsibility. He left His commission with us to finish what He started. And that's done in and through His body. And so, in fact, we've talked about this earlier on in this series. Paul, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians, Corinthians says, Don't you understand? You're just carnal. Which doesn't mean sinful. It'll get you into sin. It means you're just dominated by your natural senses. You're, you're living your life as if you have no... God's not living in you. You're living just like the world. And he says, you're acting like mere men. And the implication is we're not called to be mere men. We are supernatural beings. Not in ourself, but in what God's done in us. And this is, we're going to see today, I hope we get there, that this is very important, not just for victory in your life, but for God to fulfill His purpose for the church today. It doesn't take a lot of spiritual awareness to realize we're living in a world that's in trouble. We're living in a world that's a nation that's trying to be torn apart by the devil. That's under tremendous spiritual influences and pressures to to, to destroy this nation and in the light that this nation has been to the world. The gospel has been brought through much of the world because of this nation, and this nation has sacrificed its sons and daughters on foreign shores. When, when there were forces in this world to try to destroy people and this nation through two world wars gave our sons lives and daughters lives. And we've sent missionaries around the world, but we're now in a place where other countries are sending missionaries here. The moral fiber of this nation has been cha- is changing. But the church is here for such a time as this. But we cannot do it in our strength. We cannot do it with our programs. We cannot do it with our committees and our ideas. We cannot do it. Paul says, and this is what began to grip me about this several years ago. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he said, I did not come to you with enticing words of man's wisdom. He could have. He was a very highly educated, very articulate man. 
He says, but I determined to come to you in the demonstration and the power, in the demonstration, that's something you can see, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. And my question today to me as a pastor, my question to other pastors that I've met with, I've heard this from other pastors who finally begun to see this, where is that power and where is that demonstration? Instead, the church is being intimidated to stay inside our four walls. And they're saying to us today, as long as you stay inside your four walls, you can do whatever you want. But don't take it outside the four walls. But that's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. We can't do it in our strength. So learning to walk in what we are, who we are on the inside, learning to tap into the power that's on the inside, Later on in that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul says, says, says that God is able. We believe God's able? Because that's the beginning. If you don't think God's able, then there's nothing we can do. God is able, listen carefully, to do exceedingly, abundantly, wow, above, beyond all you can ask or think. But see, if you don't think God can do anything in your life, you're not going to ask or think much. God wants you to dream. Dream about your life. Dream about your family. Dream about seeing your family here, seeing your family in the church, seeing your family worshiping God. God wants you to dream about the potential He's put in you of ideas and business ideas and all kinds of things that God wants to do to prosper you because through that He can get His will done. Dream, not bad dreams, but dream about what God might want to do through you and through your family. And then once you begin to think about that and dream about that, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can ask or think. Of course, if we don't ask or think anything, He can't go beyond that. But if we're intimidated... If we're walking with our natural understanding, if we're walking with our natural reasoning, the reasoning of the world and what the world tells us we can and cannot do and what we're capable of, if that's what we're walking in, then we're not going to think very big. This was not my subject at all this morning, but this is where we're going. It ties in with it. God wants us awake as a church to dream. Visions and dreams. I'm not sure I'm ready for visions. Was it dreams? That's what old men get. I'm, I'm still, I almost still want to work on the young men one. So, dreams and visions. The Holy Spirit will give you visions and dreams of your family saved, of your of your life, not where it is right now, but prospering of health. What you may be dealing with an impossible situation right now. You may think that you just life is at a dead end for you. That's not God's will for your life. And as we learned, but we can't, if we don't know who's in us, if you don't believe it's possible, you won't dream. We don't want to be disappointed. And so that verse says, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly beyond all, beyond all, that you can ask or think. And here's the words we forget so often. According to the power that works in you the power of God to carry out the dreams and visions that the Spirit of God gives you, listen carefully, the power and ability to do that is in you now. 
And that's what Bob Yandian preached on. But remember what he said? He said, you don't have to feel it, because to feel it is to walk by sight. To feel it is to walk by our senses. Well, I don't feel anything today, therefore we must not be there. That's being carnal. Carnal just means I judge what's right or wrong in terms of God's Word by what I see, what I feel, what I hear, what I think. I judge God's truth by natural terms. So for instance, you have a symptom in your body. And you find out in God's Word, one of His promises is Jesus took your sicknesses and carried your diseases, and by His stripes you're healed. He paid for it. It's not God's will that you be sick. I don't care what you've been taught somewhere. The Bible says it is not God's will you be sick. Third John says, My beloved, it's above all things. I wish that you be in prosper and be in health. God's will is that you be in health. That's what His Word says. Now man has twisted it, come up with their own ideas, but God's Word says it is His will that you be in health. But said, I'm not in health. Well, then your body needs to line up with God's Word, not trying to get God to line up with your body. But the problem is, we, we read God's Word and then we check it out by looking at our body to see whether God's Word is the truth. And if you do that, you're carnal. I'm not saying you're a sinner, I'm saying you're carnal. You're governing your life by what your five senses tell you. And I've said this over and over again. When you get in your car to go home, let your senses tell you what the truth is when you pull out on the highway. But when it comes to the things of God, they're not designed to tell you what those things are. The example I read, I like this, the example I read in a book. It's like, ladies, you go into a Macy's or, or the perfume section. But you love it. And you go in there and this lady says, oh, I have just the perfume for you. And you say, oh, I want to smell it. And you open the bottle and you stick the thing in your ear. <laughs> say, I don't smell anything. The lady's going to look at you and says, that's a little strange because your ear is not designed to pick up an odor, is it? Yeah. So you've got to put it under your nose because your nose is designed to pick up an odor, Right? Your five senses are not capable of discerning anything that's of the Spirit. I've got to let that sink in. Your five senses, what you feel, what you see, my goodness, it's still there. What you hear, oh, creaking back. What, what, what you taste, whatever it is your senses are telling you, your senses are not designed, they're not built to be able to discern anything spiritual. Which is why so much of the time we say, oh, I feel God's presence. That's not what you're feeling. You're feeling the results of the emotion of God's presence. Because you can't feel God's... Now, God can show up tangibly... But that's unusual. Usually it's a thing within you. Everybody still with me? Okay. We're, just, we're going over why this is so important. Why this is so important. It's not just something we're supposed to do. This is vital that we learn to do that. Not only that, God wants, His Spirit in you wants to help you avoid things. He'll help you with investments. I've known of people that have gotten rich because they simply listened to what the Spirit told them to invest in and listened when He said, don't do it. 
He is God's wisdom inside of you. And he wants to show you, the Bible says Jesus, he's in you to show you things to come. Now, not the lottery number tomorrow. He's in you to show you things. He's in you for your sake. He's in you to enable you to do God's will. He's in the church to do these things. And yet we're walking so far below it because we're walking dominated by our senses and evaluating everything in our senses. The Bible says if you walk in the Spirit, you won't fulfill the lust of your flesh. The power to overcome sin, the power to overcome depression, the power to overcome whatever it is you're dealing with is in you this morning, right now, sitting where you are, but we don't know how to tap into it. We're not tapping into it. First of all, because we don't know it's there. Secondly, because we may know it's there, but we don't really believe it yet. We're not convinced. And thirdly, we may know it, we may believe it, but we've not learned how to be in touch with it because we're so used to the noise and realize we live in a world that's dominated by noise. People today don't know how to be still and quiet. And we've adjusted two generations now that have been raised, I've got to be listening to something all the time. Listening to, you see our kids, we're listening to, do, how do you do that? How do you listen to do your homework at the same time? You get addicted to noise. We have to have something going on all the time. And it's hard to be quiet because in order to discern the Spirit, you have to be still and you have to be quiet. So the idea that we're living in a society that's so full of noise and have gadgets and dumb smartphones that can get at you all the time and buzzers and, you know, all these things that can get at you, there's a reason behind all that. Because the devil wants us to be so bombarded with sounds and voices and noise and and stimuli that we don't know how to be quiet and how to listen inside. Because he's scared you're going to find out who's living inside of you. He is scared you're going to find out who's living inside of you. I really felt the Lord speak that to me during worship this morning. The devil's scared you're going to find out who's in you and what's in you. He's scared. He wants you to be scared, but he's the one that's scared. So he'll keep you distracted. He'll keep you worried. He's got to keep your mind off of everything but sensing in here. You've got to keep your mind off of everything but God, God's Word. He's got to do it. Because if you, are around, if, you are, if you are here and tapping in to what this Word says and you're meditating on it, and some of the things we'll talk about later on, if you're, if you're doing those things, he, there's nothing He can do to stop you. He couldn't... Let's put it this way. If there's anything the devil... I've got to be careful. Anything the devil wanted to do was to keep you from getting saved. Right? Because you belong to Him until you got saved. Could He stop you from getting saved? Then why can't He stop anything else? If the thing that was the most threatening to Him, where He had hold of you and control of you, He couldn't stop the Lord rescuing you from Him, how can we think He can do anything else to us? The only way He can is if we let Him. Out of ignorance, out of laziness, or out of just this carnality. So that's what this is all about. This is so important that we learn to walk in the Spirit. And walking in the Spirit is not some flaky, mystical thing. I'm just led by the Spirit today. Those people will give me the creeps. (laughs) 
They take the scripture in John chapter 3 where Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus the fact that it's the same thing. Jesus said, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, who was an older gentleman, said, well, blah, blah, blah. he can't understand that because he's thinking in carnal terms. He's saying, how could a man get back in his mother's womb and come out again? And Jesus is trying to show him just what we're talking about this morning. No, no, no. I'm not talking about something in this physical, natural realm. I'm talking about a change in the spirit on the inside of you. He said, because the wind blows where it wills. And you can't see it. But you can tell it's been there. And such is it with the Spirit. And I think some people read that and think, well, what that means is when the spirits were walking by the Spirit, you don't know what we're going to do. Well, God's rational. God does things decently in order. God's not flaky. There's substance to God. And what Jesus was talking about there is you can't see the wind. Your five senses can't see the wind. Or you can't see the wind. But you can tell when it's been there because you can see the results because there's branches down and we left and there were very few leaves in our yard. We came back and our yard's covered with leaves. I can tell that it wind blew while we were gone. I didn't see it, but I can tell it's been there. So Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus the same distinction. There's a spirit realm and the change needs to be in that spirit man inside of you, not your body. That's where the birth takes place. So walking in the Spirit is nothing more than learning to live. Walk means how you conduct your life, not just physically walking. Walking in the Spirit simply means you're living your life more aware of the Spirit world on the inside of you and the Spirit on the inside of you than you are of the world that's out there. Again, driving your car, you're aware of it, but while you're aware of, of the road that you're on, you can also be sensitive to the Spirit. I talk to the Lord while I'm driving. In fact, there are times he may tell you, slow down and you need to listen to him because there's something going to happen and he wants you to stay out of an accident. So that's what walking in the Spirit means. But then we discovered in order to do that, because the Spirit is inside of you and you can't see him, the way in order to, in order to walk in the Spirit, you've got to learn to walk by faith. And this is where we were last time. And we'll see if we can get through this. And the Apostle Paul is talking here about this very thing because this is what he learned to do. And right before this, he talks about some difficult things he went through. It's amazing to go back and look at some of those. He says, we were downcast, but we were not in despair. We were persecuted, but we were never abandoned. He talked about some difficult things he went through in order to carry out what God had put him here to do. And although he had an emotional reaction to them, they never stopped him. Because, and he's going to tell us the secret. Why? So we're going to pick up here and believe we'll get through this verse today. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore we do not lose heart, though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. He's talking about this distinction between his body and the spirit. For this, our light affliction, which is for, for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That's what we spend so much time on. If you weren't here three weeks ago, I encourage you to get that message because it exploded in here. While we do not look, and here's the key, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things that are not seen. Now the looking here is not with your physical eyes, it's what you're paying attention to. So this is how you do this. We're looking at paying attention to and considering not the things that are seen, that's this natural realm, but we're paying attention to focusing on the things that are not seen. Um, Colossians 3, 1 and 2 talks about if you've been raised with Christ, set your mind on the things that are above. 
We, in the course on renewing the mind, we talked about this earlier this year on Wednesday nights. We talked about how you can, your mind, you can control what your mind's thinking about. In fact, the Bible com- tells us we have to do that. Take every thought captive to obedience to Christ and punish those thoughts that don't do that. You have to be disciplined in your mind. But at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary. So the things of this natural realm are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now go to chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if an earthly house, this tent, this is body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with the hands eternal in the heavens. So what he's talking about here is this body you're going to leave here. If Jesus comes back, he'll change it in an instant while we're still here. But if Jesus doesn't come back, you're going to leave your body at some point. This physical body. It's just a tent. It's your temporary dwelling place here. And, you know, in the final resurrection, it'll be raised from the dead, but you'll leave it here and your spirit and your soul will go to be with Him. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But this body is just your temporary suit. It's like the suit of clothes I got on today. I need to wear them so I'm not embarrassed and you don't see something ugly. And when I go home, I can just take them off. But that doesn't mean I've hung in the closet. My clothes have hung in the closet because my clothes aren't me. Your body is not you. It's what houses you. And it's called a tent because it's temporary. It has no foundation. We have a building, which is a permanent thing, from God, a house not made with the hands, and that's your eternal body. There may be a mansion in heaven with a swimming pool and fishing hole for you. There may be there, but what he's talking about is there's a dwelling place. There's a body for you, a heavenly body. Verse 2. For, we, for in this we groan or earnestly desire to be clothed with our habitation. I've got to move on because this will never get where we're supposed to get to today. Verse 5. Now He has prepared us for this very thing as God, who's also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. We are also confident knowing that while we're at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord. And this is what I wanted to get to, verse 7. For we walk by faith and not by sight. You're saved by faith, but we live our life by faith. It's a lifestyle. It is an attitude. And the attitude is, I'm getting up, in the, and we have to do, you've got to set yourself when you get up in the morning. Because when you've been asleep, your mind's running, you don't have any control of it. You may wake up, your body's telling you certain things, and you've got to get a hold in the morning and talk to your body. You've got to talk to your mind, talk to your soul. That's why King David said, bless the Lord. He was talking to his soul. Set yourself. We walk by faith today. Talk to my body. We're walking by faith today, not by sight. So I'm not moved by what I see. I'm not moved by what I may feel in my body. I'm not moved by what I may hear on the news. I walk by faith and not by sight. I'm governed by what this Word says and what I believe, not what anybody else tells me when it comes to the things of God. Okay. Now we looked at some examples of this. We looked at the greatest example is Jesus. Jesus, through His three-plus years of public ministry, ran on to all kinds of opposition, and none of it ever moved him. I mean, at one point, they're going to stone him and throw him over a hill. He just walks through him because it wasn't his time. We looked at a story where, in the middle of a storm, where it looked like the ship was going down, the boat was going down, he's asleep at the back of the boat on a pillow. Why? Because he'd said, let's go to the other side. He wasn't worried about the storm he was in because he knew the answer. He wasn't moved by the wind blowing against his face. He wasn't moved by the water breaking over and the salt in his eyes. He wasn't moved by all those things. They didn't, he knew they were there, but they didn't move him because he was so in touch and here with the Spirit of God that was in him. That's what he was moved by. Then we saw, we, we saw Peter. 
He, he was trying to do that and he got out on the water. And he did walk on the water because he had his eyes on the word, these eyes on the word come, which is telling me, Jesus saying, you can do this. So when Jesus said you can do this, he believed that in his heart and stepped out on it. The problem was he started paying attention with his senses told him, which is the wind blowing in his face, the water in his face. and Because you know, circumstances will speak to you. They will talk to you. And the wind and the waves in his face told him, you can't do this. And the moment he took these eyes off of what Jesus said and put these eyes on what his senses told him, he began to go down. And we looked at some other examples. But today we're going to look at, we'll get into, the greatest example of this that the Bible says is in here to teach us a lesson. To do that, Let's go to Exodus chapter 23. Exodus chapter 23. We made it out of the introduction. Very familiar story. Now here's here's the, 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 the danger of talking about faith to people that have been in faith Christian center for a long time is we can have the attitude, well, I know that. I've heard that. My question is, are you walking in it? Because if you aren't walking in it, you haven't really heard it yet. I learned a long time ago when I hear what a message is going to be and my thought is, well, I've heard that before, then I've never really heard it. Because these words are spirit in their life. There are things I've heard I never tire of hearing. I want to hear more and more and more and more and more. I don't tire hearing about faith. Because first of all, we leaketh. We leak. The faith that I walked in by yesterday doesn't carry over so much. The memory of it carries over, but I've got to walk in it again today. And so even if, you've, no, even if this is more real to you than it is to me, we still need to be reminded of these things. And so if you don't need it, I need to do this. All right. So this is a story of the children of Israel. Very quick background for those of you who may not know. Israel is a nation that God formed for himself. He called a man Abraham, whose name was Abram at the time. He said, I want to make a new nation out of you. He chose somebody that was a moon worshiper because he wanted to start from scratch. And the, and the relationship that God established with Abraham, the covenant relationship God established with him, was based on believing God, faith in God's Word, trusting God. And out of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob came, and then twelve sons, and a nation came. And there came a great famine coming. It was not there, but it was coming. And God already prepared that his, his nation that He had formed by sending, by a long series of events, one of the sons, Joseph, into Egypt to prepare to provide for his people when the famine did come. See, that shows us God prepares for his people. If there's difficulty coming, it doesn't mean he may keep us from it, but he'll prepare us for it, if we will listen to him. So he sent Joseph ahead of time through a whole series of events. Joseph becomes the second in command of Egypt. God's own man does. And that shows you... I don't want to go get caught here. That shows you that God can work 
in an ungodly nation through godly leaders. Pharaoh was not a godly man, but God placed a man under him who was, and through that, God took care of his people, and God has will done. And then, at the right time, when the famine comes, God brings his family down. There's a little over 70 of them, and they prosper. But the Bible, and I don't have time to go through all this, the Bible says that they overstayed their need to be there. And they, because they got lazy. I mean, they had free food. Free food, free protection, free shelter. Of course, the price that was paid is they became slaves. And the reason they became slaves, it tells us in Exodus 1, is they were more numerous and mightier than the Egyptians, so Pharaoh got threatened by them. So because he was threatened by them, he put them into slavery. Egypt is a type of the world. And the world is so, the devil, who's behind it, is so threatened by the church that he's trying to keep us in slavery. And the way he does that is we need the government to feed us and to protect us and to do everything for us. And that's what kept them in slavery. But they came a point where they were so frustrated by it, they cried out to God, and God already had a deliverer prepared for them, Moses. Eighty years in training. See, God's ahead. God knows what's coming. I said, God knows what's coming. We don't have to be anxious. And God had prepared their deliverer 80 years before they cried out for his answer. And Moses shows up right on time. Even, even with his own misunderstanding of mistakes, he still got him there on time. And now they've led them out of the wilderness through 10 incredible miracles. They've come out and they come to the Red Sea which is the entrance, the exit place out of Egypt. Pharaoh's changed his mind and is bearing down on them with 600 of his crack best troops on chariots. And as they hear the ground rumble, feel the ground rumbling, and they begin to hear the noise and see the dust clouds in the distance, they realize what's happening, and God has brought a cloud down a part of His presence, and He moves the crack cloud behind them to create a barrier between Pharaoh's army and His people. And then God tells them to go forward, and they look out and say, but, 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 God, there's a little problem here. It's, um, I know the water doesn't bother you, but this was not a little creek, by the way. And, 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 and so they come to Moses. They haven't even gotten out yet. And they start complaining to Moses, you brought us out here to die. And then God, Moses goes to God and says, you... What are we to do? And it's interesting. I don't, oh, I've got to be careful to not go in this one. This is something God's been teaching me separately. This is another message for another day. God says to him, why are you talking to me? Isn't that a strange question? I mean, uh, don't you know what's going on here? I mean, after all, you're the one that called us to go out. You're the one that put us in this position. Don't you know what's going on here? But do you understand God always knows what's going on? Understand God's always right, which means we're the ones that are wrong. So we need to learn to adjust our attitude to line up with His. God says to Moses, why are you talking to me about this? I could be real careful here. We can get off track. 
What is that that's in your hand? It was a rod. Remember the rod? When God, Moses was in the wilderness and God was introducing him to the call and the anointing that he had on his life, God trained him to take this rod. And the interesting thing is he had him do what? He had him say, this is back, in, back when he appeared in the, in, the, in the burning bush. He says, what's that in your hand again? It's my staff. He said, throw it down. And he threw it down. Now a shepherd's staff is what he relies on for protection. It's his walking stick. It's what he rides on to, 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 to bring the sheep in. It's, the most, it's, it's what he's got. It's it. He said, throw it down. What happened to it? Remember? It turned into a snake. Anybody know what a snake represents in the Bible? Remember Adam and Eve in the garden? How did Satan come in? As a serpent. Snakes in the Bible, I'm not saying to in biology, snakes in the Bible represent sin. So when he cast it down, it turned into a snake. It revealed itself of whatever sin of his trust in that, serp- in that rod was. So now the sin of whatever trust he had in that rod manifests. And now what does God tell him to do? Pick it up. But he doesn't just say pick it up. He tells him how. By the tail. My youngest brother raised snakes. And I don't mean garden snakes. I mean boa constrictors and pythons. One thing I learned about snakes is the one place you don't pick them up by is the tail. Because two bad things happen when you do that. When you touch his tail, he knows where your hand is. And so he knows where to bring his mouth around to bite you. The point of this is the riskiest thing to do to pick up a snake is to touch it by, take it by his tail. What you do is you take it right behind the head. Because then you control the dangerous part. So in order to do that, because all his senses... See, before he couldn't see the sin of his trusting in that rod, but now he can see it, the danger of it. And as, as he, he's got to decide now, all my understanding, I can see that thing. It's swithering, littering, or whatever it is around. It may be hissing at him. And his mind saying, if I do this, all my understanding tells me, this is going to kill me, he's going to bite me. But God said, but God said, but God said, but God said, this is a test, but God said, pick him up by the tail. But God, you don't understand. Like God didn't create the snake, he doesn't understand anything. So Moses has to make a choice. Am I going to trust what God said or am I going to trust what I see and what I understand? And Moses chose to trust what God said, and we know it because he acted on it. And when he picked the snake up by the tail, instead of biting him, it turned back into a rod. And now, this is what that was about. That rod is now sanctified. God knows that Moses' trust will never be in the rod. That rod simply is a tangible instrument by which God's power will now be used. And then that rod was used to do everything else, all those miracles. So 
I went through all that. So you understand when God says, what is that in your hand? Moses was trained by God of what that thing could do. And so God's reminding him, why are you talking to me? I've equipped you with what you need to take to do what I've told you to do. Many times the reason we're not seeing results is because we're expecting God to do something He's equipped us to do spiritually. What's He given us? What, what, is, what has God given to us? Not a book. His Word. His promises that cannot lie. His promises that contain in His Word the very power to carry out the promise. See, that's the difference between God's Word and your Word, God's Word and my Word. When I speak a promise, I'm predicting what's going to happen. It might not, because maybe I can't do it. Maybe I want to do it, maybe I intend to do it, but I just am not able to do it. When God speaks something, the very power to carry it out is in His words. I mean, you need to meditate on that. His Word contains the power in itself to produce what it says. Doesn't Jesus call this, the Word, a seed? Matthew 13. The sower sows the seed. And then he goes on to explain the seed is the Word of God. Where does the, where, where does the seed... For a beautiful, for, let's, for, let's, the seed for, for an oak tree, which is an acorn, I guess. Where does that acorn get the power and the ability to produce an oak tree? It's in it, isn't it? It's all in that acorn. It just has to be planted and watered and taken care of. And Jesus said this word is like a seed. It contains the power of God to fulfill the promise. Isaiah 55, God says, My word comes down out of heaven, just like the rain and the snow, and it will not return to me void, but it will accomplish. Not it might, it will accomplish what I sent it to do. Not only that, God's given us His Spirit on the inside of us. We're talking about what Moses had in his hand. What do you have in your hand? You have God's Word. Not only that, Jesus told His disciples in the church before He left, whatever you ask in My name, I will make sure it's done. If you ask anything of the Father in My name, that's, in other words, as if Jesus said it. The disciples were sent out at one point. Jesus commissioned them to go out on a test trial. And He said, I want you to, I want you to heal the sick, raise the dead, I want you to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's here right now. And the way they're going to know it is they're going to see the kingdom of God by what you do. And our commission is no different. Jesus said, and they came back. I love, I love Luke 10, 19. It's the 70. It's not just the 12. 70 of them come back. It's a master. Even the demons are subject to us in your name. Acts, I think it's chapter 3. 
where Peter and John come to the gate beautiful. And you see this man who's been lame from, his, lame from birth. He's never walked. He's crying out and he's saying, you know, begging. And Peter says, I don't have money to give you, but what I do have, I give you. In the name of Jesus. So what was Peter saying? What I've been given, I have. In that name, stand up and walk. So he was saying what Jesus could do in this situation, I can do in this situation, because I have his name, his power of attorney. All the authority that was in him is in that name. And what happens is we look at circumstances, we look at situations, and we feel inadequate because we're looking at ourselves, not whose name we've been given. So God said to Moses, why are you talking to me about this? In other words, to bring, why are you praying? Pastor, we're supposed to pray yes for some things. But there are promises God's just made you. He's waiting for you to enforce it. Why do I need to ask God to do something He's already done? For me. Now, interceding for others, that's a different matter. But receiving something for yourself, if you have a promise of God, that means God's already done it. See, when you pray for yourself, you're not asking God to do something for you. That's got to sink in. Because most of our religious thinking about prayer is I'm asking God to do something for me, which means He hasn't done it yet. So there's a question of whether He's going to do it or not. If you, if, you, if you go to a restaurant and you say, boy, you know, I'd really like, I'd really like a filet mignon. i got to be careful. I don't want to lose anybody right now. You don't know. The waiter may come back and say, I'm sorry, sir, we're out of it. I mean, we, it, it's on the menu, but we just don't have any today. So you're not going to get what you want. But if you go to a buffet, you know what those are? You know what they have because it's already on the table. And you just say, there, that's the one I want. Those are the green beans I want. They're there. You know it's already there. So the issue of whether they have it, the issue of whether they'll give it to you or not, is settled because it's right there. The difference is you can see that with your eyes. But the things that God has provided for us, Peter talks about God has made provided for us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Ephesians 1.3 says God has given to us, bestowed upon us, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. That doesn't mean it's waiting for us in heaven. It means every blessing brought to us out of the spirit realm, God's given to us. Romans 8.32, He who spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up from us all, how will, he not all, how will He not also, together with Him, freely give us all things? And the implication in the Greek is at the same time. God's held nothing back. And see, our religious thinking is, I've got to pray, I don't know what now, if, if it's not in this Word, then you have to find out whether it's God's will. But if it's in this Word, it's God's will. He's not holding anything back, which means the promises that are in here, God's already given them. But how come I don't have it? Because we're asking Him to give something we've already been given. Instead, we have to receive it. And sometimes we have to fight for it. Sometimes the fight's our own senses. 
Sometimes the fight may be with the devil. But it's yours. It's yours. So God's saying to him, why are you talking to me? And Moses must have had this funny look on his face. Uh, what's that in your hand? And the question today is, what's in our hand? It's not a rod. It's the name of Jesus. What's in our hand? This word, Ephesians 6 says in the spiritual warfare, starting in verse 10, he says, one of the weapons of this warfare, one of the part of the armor of God is what? The shield of faith, which keeps the enemy's fiery darts from getting into your heart. But the only offensive weapon is what? The sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. We've been given the Word of God. What does it mean it's the sword of the Spirit? When you speak the Word, you now put in the hands of your angels spiritual weapons to fight for you. But if we keep our mouth closed, or if we say, I don't know if I'm going to make it, I don't know, I'm just so tired, oh, I'm never going to make it, nothing ever works for me, then you're authorizing your spiritual enemies to work. Your words authorize. I don't have time to get into this morning, but when God established man on this earth, He gave him authority on this earth, and Satan came to steal that authority from Adam. So the only authority he has on this earth, he got from man. Jesus came to win that back and give it to his church. So, so much of his church is authorizing Satan through our words because he has to get your permission to do something to you. He's very crafty at it. He's very skilled at it because we walk by our senses because he uses your senses and talks to you. Oh, you're never going to get over this. I mean, you've been praying for three years and you still have this condition in your body. It's never going to work. Why don't you quit? Why do you think he's telling you that? <laughs> he's not trying to help you. He's a liar and the father of lies. There is no truth in him. Is this helping anybody this morning? This seems to be where the Spirit of God's taking us. So we'll just go after it. The devil has robbed the church because he's scared of it discover the authority the church has over him that came from Jesus to carry out his will. It's the same authority he walked in, his body walks in. My body has the same right to drive, ride in my car that my head has to ride in my car because it's one body. What is it that's in your hand? And the point is this, we'll just get into it, is that They've come through all this. The Israelites have seen this because as you know what happens when he realized, oh, I have in my hand what it takes. He just held it out over the sea and the sea supernaturally parted. It says a strong east wind came. I believe that's the Spirit of God. And blew the water back so it stood up high on either side. And the entire nation of Israel, 600,000 warriors. So from that we can extrapolate maybe two to 500,000 people walked through on dry land, it says. Imagine what, imagine what it must have been like. Now, that's important because their senses are seeing something. They're walking through. Every Israelite had to walk through a wall of water on either side. And look at this. And they're walking on dry land. And they're hearing the water. They may be able to smell the water. There may be a little spray from the water. And they're walking through, probably, probably at first, the first ones were a little... <laughs> yeah. 
You know, just in case it doesn't work, I can run back. That's why they put the priests out in front. <laughs> so they go through every, every Israelite walked through that. Now they get to the other side and they're all on the other side. God, this is going to become important to us because remember while they're doing this, the Egyptian army is trying to destroy them and God has a pillar of cloud. He has a barrier protecting them. And now God removes that barrier of protection. There's a defense there. We're going to see that. God removes that defense and, and the, the, the Israelites are like this, you know, and now it's going, and they rush in after them. And about the time they all get in the middle, God stops breathing, holds his breath, and the water comes back, I'm just joking, the water comes back in and swallows them up. Now here's the point. Every single Israelite saw that day their enemy destroyed in front of them. They saw this. They saw it with their eyes. They heard it with their ears. They may have felt it with the ground. They've had this experience in their senses. And they get out three days and their canteens are going dry. And they go to the water to take some water and it's bitter. And they begin to cry out, God, why did you bring us out here to die? Three days. See, we think if I see great miracles, if I see great things, it's going to change me. Maybe, but it may not last more than three days. Because walking by faith does not come by what you see. I've had to learn this through this battle I've gone through is that it's a decision, it's an act of your will. You can choose to believe what God says and not be moved by your senses. We can choose it. It's an act of our will. They get out there and they go about three months, I think it was. Yeah, three months down into the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. And we'll just get into this. We're still setting a stage, but it'll be next week when we get, hopefully get to finish this. And they get down there and they have set up a camp. And this is where God wants to call. This is Mount Sinai, sometimes called Mount Horeb. And God calls Moses up on the mountain and begins to give him instructions. He goes up several times. And in chapter 19, he tells him to, to go down and prepare the people, consecrate them for three days, and then bring them around the mountain because I'm going to come down on the mountain. I love this verse because in Moses, Moses brought the people out to meet with their God. That's what we do on Sunday morning. We come out to meet with our God. I know He's in you, He's in me, but we come together to meet with our God. We worship Him, we let Him speak to us, whatever else He may want to do with us and what we may want to do for Him, but we come to meet with our God. And now God begins to give them some instructions for what's going to come. And again, we're just having a chance to set the stage. Exodus 23. We'll pick up. I have had to condense this down. Exodus 23. Well, I I wrote it in my notes wrong, so I gave it to the booth wrong, but okay. I'm going to pick up in verse... um, Well, let's pick up... 
He tells them he's going to send his angel before him. That's that cloud. Verse 23. My angel will go before you and bring you into the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, and all the other rites. And I will cut them off. What he's telling them is the land I'm going to take you to is inhabited. And it's inhabited by these people. And that's important to understand. God's telling them that. Verse 24. You shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them, nor do according to their works, but you shall utterly overthrow them and completely break down their sacred pillars. Verse 25. You shall serve the Lord your God. Look at this. And He will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness from your midst. In the very beginning, God's telling them, He already told them once, He'd heal them, I want to take sickness from your midst. In other words, I want, my will is you walk in health. You serve me, I'll bless your bread and water. It's fine for us to give a blessing over our food, that's giving thanks for it. But God says, if you serve me, if you put me first, I'll bless your food. And I'll remove sickness from your midst. Say, so how's he going to do that? Well, he did it on the cross. But we'll go there later on. Verse 26, No one shall suffer miscarriage or be barren in your land, and I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send... My, look at, listen to this. Because here's what he's telling them. This is so important for us. He has a destiny for them. Look at me a second. He has a destiny for them. He's not just getting them out of Egypt. He has a purpose for them, a destiny for them. He wants to establish them in this land He chose for them. The land of Palestine. And I believe one of the reasons God chose that land is because at this time in history what was going to happen is Palestine was going to be the crossroads of the major trade routes between the East and the West. Remember Marco Polo? He went, to, he went into... He found the great riches of the East of China and he brought them back to Europe. But to do that he had to go through here. And I believe God's plan was to take this nation and he would be their king. He, I know that because it says so. And that that nation would prosper beyond any other nation because the righteousness, the prosperity of a nation is based on the righteousness of its king. And if God's your king, you can't be any more righteous than that. And God wanted them to bring the riches from the east and the west, pass through there, and look at what they had and say, Wow! Who's your king? Ah, I'm glad you asked. And I believe that's still God's will today for His people. So God had a destiny for them, a purpose for them in this particular place. God calls us to a place, by the way. I believe God calls us to a church. It's not whether I like the furniture or the music, it's what God called you. And so he's, he, he, His will is for them to go there. So here's what's, here's what's at stake here. What's at stake here is even though that's God's will for them, not just His will for them for their sake, it's His will for them for his, to carry out His plan for His people. They have a say in whether they enter it or not. Just because it's God's will doesn't mean you're going to get there. We have a role to play. Our role is easy, but we need to do it. And this is what it's all about. Alright, I just have a chance to introduce this and then we're going to have to pick it up later on. So what God's telling them here is this. I brought you out of Egypt. See, God brought us out of the world, 
Egypt represents the world. Through whatever journey it took to get you where you are today, He brought you out of this, the world. But He's bringing you into something. There's a place that God has for us. And some people used to teach that, that the promised land was heaven. But the problem with that is heaven doesn't have Jebusites and Hivites and Canaanites. There's, there's no enemies in heaven to overcome. Can, the promised land represents God's will for the church here today on this earth. Victorious. Jesus is coming back for a victorious, glorious church. Not one that's cowering, hiding in caves. He's coming back for a victorious church. That doesn't mean the whole world will be changed, but the church will have carry God's will out with power and impact. But we can't get there if we're hiding in the wilderness, trying to get back into Egypt every time something goes wrong. So there's much at stake at this. This is what I want to share with you. And God's telling them before they ever get into the into it, he's telling them what's there. He said, I'm taking you into land with the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the, all the other rites, termites, <laughs> whatever other rites there are. But I've gone before you. Let me read on a little bit. He's telling them ahead of time what they're going to find. He's telling, he's telling them. He's giving him their, his word. of what He's going to do. Verse 29, And I will drive them out before you in one year, lest the land becomes desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous. Little by little I will drive them out before you until you have increased and inherit the land. God's saying, even the way I'm going to do this is so that the beasts don't eat everything up, so there'll be something there for you to enjoy. And you will inherit the land. Not, I hope you're going to make it. Not, you know, I've looked at these guys. They're pretty tough. But, you know, if things go wrong, I'll be there with you. No, he said, I'm sending you there. I'm giving this land to you. And I will go before you and drive them out. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to sit on the border and watch God go through and wipe them out. When God says, I'm going to go before you, he means I'm going with you. Because when he went before them through everything, his cloud was literally right there with them. Verse 31, I'll set boundaries from the Red Sea. Da, 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 da. Verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them nor with their gods. Verse 33, they shall not dwell in your land lest they make, a co- make you sin against me. For if you serve other gods, it will be a, surely be a snare to you. Look at verse 32 and verse 33. It says, You shall make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. So what God's saying to them is your victory over them, your complete victory over them, is crucial for my plan to be carried out. Whether you do what I call you to do is important not only for my plan, but for your welfare, because if you don't utterly destroy them, what will happen is their sin will eventually get in you. So whether we walk 
by faith in God's Word, whether we walk in the Spirit, and again, it's a process of learning how to do it, there's a lot at stake in this. For God's will and God's plan. Because again, if you look at the news and everything that's going on, it's so overwhelming. Who are we? Who are we against all that opposition out there? But it's not just us against it. It's God. And Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. But to do that, to walk in the victory that we are called to walk in, in our personal lives as a church, and I don't mean just Faith Christian Center, we have got to learn to walk in the Spirit so that the power of the Spirit, the wisdom of the Spirit, the direction of the Spirit is what's driving us and leading us and guiding us. And the safest place you can ever be is right in the middle of God's will. It's right in the middle of God's will. But here you've got this generation that's been raised in Egypt. They're used to the onions and the leeks. They're used to the protection of the government taking care of them and feeding them. They're used to this, and now they're out in God's government. They're out in God's kingdom. They're out in God's ways. And those ways are, are, are lived and walked in by faith and not by sight. Let's go very quickly to chapter 24. Next one over. Verse 7. He, Moses, took the book of the covenant of what God had just promised and read it in the hearing of the people. So the people have heard what we just read. God said, I'm giving you this land. Right now it's occupied by all those ites. But I will drive them out little by little. I will go before you and I will utterly, you will utterly through me destroy them, and you must do that, otherwise you'll compromise at some point, and sin will get into you. So Moses read the book, and the hearing of the people, and look at this, and they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do, and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, and sprinkled it on the people and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to these words. So here's the point of this. God has made a promise that's their destiny. That's His will for their life. His purpose for them. They've heard the words. Moses has written them down. And Moses has now read this in front of them and said, Look, this is not just some church service we had. This is a covenant God's making with you. What do you say? And they say, we've heard the words. We accept the terms. And everything that God says, we will do. Now here's why it's important. Because what we're going to look at next week is what happens when they get there. This is the background. It's very simple. God's given them His Word. And part of that Word is you're going to have challenges. Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous. So being in this world doesn't mean you won't have trouble. God's telling us, if you follow the Lord, you will be persecuted. There are promises that we don't put in our refrigerator. <laughs> Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Those that love the Lord are persecuted. Oh Lord, I think you don't need to believe for those. That's out there. But the rest of the verses, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. 
So God hasn't promised that we'll be free from affliction. What He's promised us is I'll overcome them through you. I'll overcome them through you. I'll overcome them through you. That's the promise He's made to us. We've seen it in the Word. We've accepted the terms. Now what's going to happen when we get there and we run up against the affliction and we run up against the challenge? What are we going to walk by? And what we're going to look at next time is when they get to that, they fail the test. Because when they go into the promised land, they send spies in and they come back and the spies tell them, everything God told us is true. But there are large people in there with big swords and spears. God told them they were there. That's why we spent this time this morning. God told them they were there. God wasn't playing games with them and saying, you know, it's a wonderful land. There's no, it's, you know, it's the land of milk and honey, you know, and all this money. Just go in there. It's going to be so easy. Don't worry about it. Because he was afraid they couldn't handle it. No, 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 no. God tells you the truth. He doesn't hide things from us. But he also tells us what he always tells us what he will do. And what happened is when they got there, they were more moved by what they saw than what God said. And the consequences were disastrous for them. And we're going to pick up here next time and we're going to see but this foundation now, how they got to that place from here where they were confident, they made a covenant with God. How did they get to that place where they failed the test? Because there are lessons that we need to learn. Let's pray. Father, we thank You today for Your graciousness and goodness. Thank You for Your Word that teaches us and prepares us. We thank You for Your Spirit who lives in us. Father, we ask You to take the seed that we've heard this morning, sown in our heart, and may the Holy Spirit water that seed and begin to open our eyes to areas of our life where we're, we're, we're moved by things our senses tell us more than we are moved by what Your Spirit says and by what Your Word says. Father, we believe that Your Spirit is speaking to the church today, challenging us, calling us, drawing us to learn how to truly walk in the Spirit for the victory that You have called us to walk in. We thank You for Your precious promises. And we stand in agreement with them today and say yes and amen to them. In Jesus' name.